Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Welcome to UCI Law Talks. Today, I'm talking to Karen Gustafson, professor of law and co-director of the Center on Law, Equality, and Race here at UCI. She studies welfare and economic policy, criminal law and procedure, and conducts interdisciplinary research on race, ethnicity, gender, and socioeconomic inequality. She's one of those people who has a gift for presenting a multifaceted perspective on an issue. And today, we're going to be talking about laws on legitimacy. And I'm, I'm going to start by asking you to explain a little bit about that. But first, welcome. Thank you for joining well, us. Thank you for inviting me. So this project that you're working on focuses on the law of bastardy. Yes. What is bastardy? Uh, Well, bastardy laws were on the book from the colonial period until late 19th, early 20th century. And they were laws that regulated both uh, uh, orphan children and uh, the children of unwed parents. So these had to do with disposition of property or with personal rights or both? They did all all sorts of things, and they did different things in different places. In the North, bastardy laws were basically the precursor to child enforcement laws we have today. Um, uh, A lot of people don't know this, but uh, there's always been some provision for the poor. And uh, before we had a welfare system, usually counties or parishes would uh, provide for destitute children. Um, And where there wasn't a father, children often ended up destitute. So in the North, what the bastardy laws did uh, was uh, they would um, uh, uh, seek compensation from the father if they could track him down. And often they had trouble doing that, um, but they would uh, go after his property um, or, or uh, seek support of the child and also for the mother for the first few years. Um, in the South, bastardy laws were much different. Uh, they weren't uh, civil statutes as they were in the North. They were treated as criminal statutes. In the South, bastardy laws were used uh, basically to indenture both parents and children, especially free people of color. In the book proposal that you shared with me before uh, before we met today, mm-hmm. um, you make clear that the laws on bastardy function at once both as an instrument of oppression, of subordination, um, but they're in, in particular of groups that are already relatively powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also serve as a means of resistance to federal encroachment. And at the same time, uh, they're a means of resistance by the relatively powerless with funny alliances, right? There, there are people that are relatively empowered in society who, who work with these marginalized groups and can kind of take advantage of these legal regimes. If, if, um, can you explain how these laws, which I know I never learned in property class in law school, mm-hmm. how, did, how do they have such far-reaching effects? Uh, well, they were very flexible legal instruments. So uh, the bastardy laws in the South rendered 
parent, the bastardy laws in the South uh, uh, said that children of unwed parents were filius nullius, uh, basically the child of no one. So parents didn't have rights to their own children. Now this meant that the states, that the counties rather, had a lot of control over parents and children. Um, uh, but there were moments, uh, my research is focusing on North Carolina, and there were moments there when families used the bastardy laws to their own advantage. As an example, um, there were free blacks in North Carolina in the early 19th century, like 1807, 1805, who uh, couldn't get married. Marriage was very expensive, um, and uh, there were lots of restrictions, racial restrictions on marriage and restrictions between free blacks and slaves. So um, most children born to free blacks were considered bastards and therefore filius nullius. But the way that these parents could have um, their children recognized as their own was uh, to have the courts apprentice the children to their own parents, um, which sometimes happened. So in, in those instances, the bastardy laws were ways that, uh, of recognizing legitimate families, in fact, legitimizing black families in the South. What's the purpose of the apprenticeship? I mean, is, is this the idea that the, the child will be put to productive use because of this apprentice relationship, a use that they wouldn't otherwise serve, or, or because of the idea of an apprentice has broader application than, than just here? Right. Well, um, you know, in the 19th century and earlier, the idea was children needed a father. They couldn't really be legitimate um, without a father, they needed a father to build their morals, to offer them guidance. Uh, and so uh, there needed to be some man overseeing their, their upbringing, whether it was their father or a master in an apprenticeship relationship. But the apprenticeship laws that, that were attached to bastardy laws were also a way of controlling uh, labor pools, right? If you have... Uh, families, both poor white families and uh, free black families who have small plots of land, and you pluck their often teenage children, sometimes younger, off those plots of land and assign them to white property landowners, you're really shifting labor resources away from subordinated communities to wealthier, privileged um, landowners. You talk about this in the context of, of debt peonage. In uh, yeah, how do these do these work together? How do these relate? Uh, well, uh, people usually think of slavery as the only form of involuntary servitude in the South, but there were other forms of involuntary servitude as well. There was indenture for people who owed money, um, sometimes on criminal charges. Uh, there were apprenticeships for orphan and bastard children. Um, and then at, at the apprenticeships continued after emancipation. They were actually the way um, that the government uh, uh, 
they were the way the government controlled young black men after emancipation. There were a lot of anxieties about unsupervised young black men, which, you know, is a, an anxiety that carries over today. Um, and then the um, sort of mode of social control after emancipation became debt peonage, where um, people fell into debt and uh, uh, local courts would say, to pay off your debts, you need to um, uh, work for somebody to pay this off, whether you want to or not. And that, that then moved into slave labor through prison labor. So one of the more provocative ideas in what I read and, and in what you just said is that the laws on bastardy uh, function to discipline particular populations. Exactly. Right? The, un, the undesirable populations as well as, I guess, undesirable contact, uh, conduct, at least, uh, at least in theory. And you suggest that those mechanisms persist, right? Yes. That, that we still have those with us today. Can you say a little bit about how and, and why? Because again, we don't learn it in law school, but, but you suggest it's still with us. Well, uh, the bastardy laws were foundational to the child support system, right? Which, uh, I mean, we think of as supporting children, but uh, it, it's also a way that uh, men get entangled um, uh, in government, right? They can't uh, support their children. Often, the men who are in arrears are the men on the margins, the mon the men who have uh, weak ties to the labor force, little um, uh, education, and so the child support enforcement system isn't particularly great for them. Um, and it's not always great for their relationships to their children. And sometimes they decide to work off the books, sometimes in the underground labor economy, sometimes in um, illicit labor economies um, to make ends meet, whether for themselves or for their families. So sort of the extent to which it's a it's an unenlightened policy response, it has its roots in this earlier, it, it, fair to call it a form of social control. Yes. I mean, that's that's what, we're, what we're talking about. Um, how do these laws on legitimacy, which clearly implicate racial oppression, relate to the oppression of women, right, whose, whose kind of social and legal status changes over time? Um, well, uh, it, Early in their use, uh, bastardy laws were used to control women who were seen as immoral in all sorts of ways. So um, it was often hard to identify women who were prostitutes in a community. But if they turned up pregnant, you could haul them into court on bastardy charges. Um, and it, it wasn't just that they were hauled into court. Sometimes they were imprisoned on bastardy charges. Because this is what could be proved. Yeah. You had evidence. Right, then. right. So if, if a woman uh, was seen heavy with child or she had given birth and the community members knew that she wasn't married, um, uh, the local magistrate would issue a warrant for her arrest under the bastardy laws. And what happened to the, to the child? Uh, the child uh, was still usually raised by the mother. 
Um, but the courts maintained control of the child, and when the child was old enough to work, so usually about age 12 or 14 for um, black children, and about age 7, uh, sorry, 12 or 14 for white children, and age 7 for black children, they went into the service of another family. I'm beginning to see why I didn't learn this in, in law school. <laughs> How did you get interested in this subject? I fell into this project. Um, uh, uh, a friend came over to my house for Thanksgiving, and he said, you know, I've been doing some uh, research on my my family, and all of the documents I can find are these things called bastardy bonds. Do you know anything about bastardy bonds? And I'd never heard of them before. And I said, oh, I'll Google it. And I couldn't find much there. Um, but uh, it piqued my interest, and I kept doing more and more research and uh, then decided to visit the archives in North Carolina and actually take a look at the bastardy bonds. But I'd never heard of them before. I'd never heard of bastardy laws before that. And, you know, what I've come to learn is that tens of thousands of free blacks in the South um, fell into periods of um, involuntary servitude, often twice in life as, as a child and then upon having children under these laws. So what is a bastardy bond? Well, there are actually different documents called bastardy bonds. One of the bastardy bonds had to do with the bond um, the parents had to pay, the pregnant uh, uh, woman or the woman who had a child, um, and the putative father. Um, and these were bonds, uh, uh, they were basically agreements saying that um, uh, they would be held responsible if the child um, became destitute. So they were security bonds, and often other people in the community would sign on to these bonds saying, we will provide for the child if the child becomes destitute. Bastardy bonds were also the, in, the indenture agreements when parents couldn't post those security bonds. So um, men especially were sometimes indentured for three years if it was discovered they had fathered a child out of wedlock. Uh, and then the third kind of bastardy bond was actually the, the written agreement between uh, a master and the court, um, uh, where the master agrees to um, provide the basics for um, uh, the orphan or bastard child during the period of apprenticeship. So are these the kinds of documents that you are unearthing? Yeah. Yeah, I've been looking at these documents, and I've been looking through um, court records, minutes of, of court proceedings uh, in North Carolina. It's been incredibly interesting. Why North Carolina? Uh, North Carolina has actually done a better job of preserving county-level records than other states. Um, so <clears throat> in a lot of state archives, you will find state documents, but to get a hold of county-level documents, you have to go to the counties, and sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. But North Carolina has a wonderful archive where they've preserved all sorts of rich information. But this is not something that people have really focused on in the past. Not, not many. So John Hope Franklin actually wrote a book years ago called 
uh, the Free Negro in North Carolina, where a lot of his records relied on these bastardy bonds and apprenticeship bonds. Um, and uh, there have been uh, some feminist historians who have written about uh, bastardy and how it regulated uh, women's sexuality and women's lives. But I think the scholars who've written on bastardy and apprenticeship so far have really not given the necessary attention to how it, um, how bastardy laws were used to police racial boundaries and used to um, manage labor pools. Why is that? That was the next question I wanted to ask. Why has someone not kind of traced these through? Because it's really kind of striking. Well, I think right, we tend to focus on one law, and, and bastardy laws really require an analysis of, of several different kinds of laws. So it's not just bastardy laws, but you have to look at marriage laws, right? There were um, uh, uh, children who were legal bastards because their parents couldn't get married. Why couldn't their parents get married? Often because it was very expensive um, to get married or because states created restrictions on who could marry and who uh, couldn't. With this research, what are you hoping to get us to think? How are, how are you trying to get us to think differently? What, are, what is kind of what, what are you? It's very provocative. So I'm curious where you're trying to push us, the readers, to go. Well, I think a lot of people think of the state and the family as separate entities, right? That the state plays a neutral role in the regulation of families. But I think this research shows that going as far back to the founding of the country, um, state laws have governed families quite heavily, especially families on the margins, single parent families and black families. That's, that's incredible because that just seems so salient today. Yeah. Um, as we see battles over same-sex marriage yes. um, playing out. In wrapping up these conversations, I'd like to always ask one general question. Is there something else I should be asking or, or something else that, I, that you would like to mention? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not a historian, and so the trip to the archives was a new thing for me. Um, but in going through the records there... I was just stunned by the fact that slavery was everywhere. I mean, I would come across probate records and what was the property that siblings were fighting about. They were fighting about the division of slaves. Um, uh, I'd come across mortgage documents where people were seeking second mortgages and what were they using as the collateral for their mortgages. They were to buy a cow. They were using their slaves. Um, I came across a sale of defective goods and, um, you know, what was the defective good that was sold? It was a slave with a hernia. I mean, I, it, I hadn't spent that much time thinking about how central slavery was to every part of economic and social life in the South, but I, I really couldn't ignore it in going through these court documents. It was woven into the, into the fabric. So it was speak. everywhere. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.